We're calling today Cannibal Sunday. Alright? Now, I just put one up there. What happens if you have upset a cannibal? You get into hot water? Okay, now, there's way more where this comes from, alright? So the question is, are we offended by cannibal jokes or are they okay? Nobody's offended. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier. We're like, Dustin's like, if somebody's offended by a cannibal joke, they've got to be a cannibal. Like, no one's going to be offended by this. <laughs> All right, good. So, what did the cannibal? Uh, what did the cannibal get when he came home late for dinner? That's good. <laughs> the cold shoulder. <laughs> All right. Now, what I do? So, people that don't know me really well, like. When there's something that's really difficult, I usually make fun and try to have a good time because that means that there's something challenging coming up. Um, so this is my way of dealing with it. So today we're going to start, we're going to make this surprising connection between Christopher Columbus and cannibalism. Anybody? Yeah? It's going to be a surprise then for everyone, I think. I didn't know this either. We're going to then move into a teaching of Jesus uh, that the disciples said they found it nearly impossible to understand. And then we're going to see that this teaching, of course, moves us into this moment of decision, usually as Jesus' teachings do, this moment where we have to decide, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with this difficult teaching? So here we go, let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit, that as we read your scriptures and your word is proclaimed, that we would hear the things that you have to say to us today. Amen. Amen. This is Mark 6, 56-69. You'll see in the very first verse why we're calling today Cannibal Sunday. You ready? Those who eat my flesh, right there, <laughs> it's over. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you our spirit and life. But among you, there, is, uh, there are some who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe, and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So when Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. And so this is, this is like, I'm going to have fun with it, but it's actually serious, right? The early church really did face opposition right from its inception, and as Christianity began to spread beyond Judea, many of these attacks on Christianity were not necessarily opposing Jesus' teachings. They were opposing the practices of his followers. And so one of the critiques and objections was that Christians practiced cannibalism in their worship gatherings. It's actually really serious. Okay? So think about it. 
What practice do we do monthly? Yeah, communion. It was over the practice of communion that outsiders were looking in at Christian worship gatherings and saying, these guys, these guys practice cannibalism. They say they're eating the, the flesh and blood of Jesus, right? So two cannibals, this, is, I'm gonna, this, this joke is going to come with a disclaimer, all right? So Nana, as my mother-in-law, I love you, but I can't resist this joke, okay? Two cannibals sitting around a campfire, one says to the other, I hate my mother-in-law. The other one says, then just eat the vegetables. <laughs> that is funny, right? Okay, that's funny. Okay, that's why it comes to the disclaimer, because you know I love you. Okay. Yes, you know, that's the rule, right? I know, anytime I do that to a family member, I have to pay. So I'm not getting poorer by the day. Um, and I'm not done. <laughs> Now, for centuries, people have been drawn to this idea of cannibalism. We should ask ourselves why. It's a good question. Why are we fascinated with them? Since Homer and the Greeks, cannibalism was this ultimate taboo. And so the text began like this, right? Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. It's like, uh-oh, right there. First sentence. If you weren't a Christian, put yourself in the shoes of someone else. If you weren't a Christian, you didn't understand Christian worship gatherings, this would sound a little weird, wouldn't it? Seriously. How weird would this sound? Take yourself out of you understand what's going on and just say, this is a little strange. Now, what's even stranger is that there's actually such a thing as cannibal experts, all right? <laughs> there's, there really are some. I don't know why. They've been trying to figure out why are people so fascinated by cannibals. And so what they say is that when you combine the ultimate taboo with our obsession with food, you get a fascination with cannibals, right? That's what, that's what people say we're interested. Two cannibals are eating a clown. One says to the other, does this thing taste funny? <laughs> that was... <laughs> All right. Maybe there's only going to be one more. Let's see. I've got, actually, I've got a bunch more in there. Um, we'll see how many more make it out. That one is for my daughter, Madison. I actually texted it to her because she got to have a little bit of wit to get that one. It goes over some people's heads. Um, I think that one's really funny. Now, here's Columbus. I, just killing myself right now. <laughs> a short and sinister history lesson. Why is this history lesson in this sermon? To be really honest, I'm not sure, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, there is a connection. I do know why, but I really learned something here. Christopher Columbus, 1492, he accidentally lands in the Caribbean, 8,000 miles away from where he wanted to be. Different story. He meets these friendly Indians, the Arawaks. In some translation bungle, Columbus thought that they were telling him that there were these one-eyed monster people with dog snouts who ate other people, right? So he thinks he hears this in some sort of weird translation thing, and he writes it in his journal, like not making this stuff up. This is in his journal. And at first he called these people the Caribs. They were from this island called Carib. That word later became cannibal. Okay, so Columbus is actually the person that invented the word, not the idea. The idea goes back much further. But he's the one who actually coined that word cannibal. And so at first Columbus wasn't sure whether to believe these Indians or not, but after meeting, and this is a quote, this is, I love this, he says in his journal, after meeting a really scary, unattractive carob, he became convinced that there was such a thing as a cannibal. All right? So he wrote this in his diary, without a doubt. These people here are evil, and they're from the island of Carib, and they eat men. That's from Columbus's journal. Was there actually any evidence of this? Not a shred. Columbus wants their gold so badly that any excuse will do. He sails home, 
He sails back a year later, completely cannibal-obsessed. He wrote in his journal that the islands were filled with cannibals, right? And so his response, of course, most of us know this now, we didn't years ago, his response was to enslave them. He takes 500 natives, he ships them home, and they get there, 200 of them die along the journey. Queen Isabella, at first, is not happy with this because slavery didn't fit well with her Christian values. She actually sent many of those slaves back. Um, but that would all change because she felt strongly that every human being should be treated with fairness and kindness and respect except for one group of people. Anybody? Cannibals. Cannibals. For real. Pope Innocent IV got in on the action. He said that cannibals, that Christians should punish the sinful cannibals with brute force. Quote. Does that sound like Jesus to you? I was curious. I don't, I don't see that anywhere. So, we add this all up. Columbus and his crew could now, with the blessing of the queen and the blessing of the pope, dehumanize, enslave, and slaughter whole tribes of people, which, by the way, he's pretty good at. So, why? Because cannibals are some sort of subhuman species. Accuse someone of being less than human, and you can do a lot of horrible things to them, right? And so, this same charge that Columbus laid on these indigenous people of the Americas was actually the same charge that were levied against Christians because of their practice of communion the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. Now, I was thinking about this. My small group, we, uh, we're having... Anyone ever heard of Pliny the Elder or Pliny the Younger? Most people know those by uh, beers. They're famous American IPAs. Um, they're like, the Pliny the Elder has actually voted the world's greatest beer many, many years in a row. But Pliny the Younger, his younger brother, <laughs> is a beer also. Um, but historically, he was this Roman uh, senator, this governor, right? And he was actually a guy who we were talking about this, and Jeff, we were talking about this, and Jeff's like, are you going to talk about that in your sermon? I'm like, I don't know, I don't think so, but maybe I will. He was a guy who was famous for writing letters to the Roman Emperor Trajan, and in his letters, he was looking for excuses. This is why Columbus fits. He was looking for excuses to execute Christians. And the two things he came up with were cannibalism and unlawful political gatherings. And so these are the two things he was using to try to charge and punish Christians, which is what he wanted to do, but then when he took a close look at Christian worship gatherings, his final letter to Emperor Trajan said, you know what, they just eat regular stuff. Like, this one's wrong. He had gotten that one wrong. It didn't stop him from doing what he wanted to do, um, but he knew that he was wrong about that one. And so here we have Jesus teaching in the synagogue to a crowd that was originally very enthusiastic about it. The things are going to change really, really quickly. This tension had been building up, and it was around Jesus' claim to be bread from heaven that would, last, uh, that would last forever and would end hunger and thirst, right? Dale was talking about this. I think I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so it goes from bad to worse. Jesus then tells them that not only is his real residence in heaven, but that if they don't eat his flesh and drink their blood, drink his blood, they won't possess eternal life and be raised. And so the verb here, this is interesting stuff, right? The verb here is this really strong word that I'd never heard anyone talk about this before, but the word means to like chomp down, to gnaw or gobble up or feast on. So like when I was thinking about this, I'm like Justin Turner, the Dodgers, big red beard, Justin Turner with a plate of chicken wings. <laughs> That's the image that comes to my head. What's the point? Jesus is, seriously, Jesus is offensive. Downright offensive, suggesting this. And people take really, they, they're offended by what he's saying. 
you're supposed to gnaw on Jesus' flesh like a wild animal. People found that to be extremely offensive, and we probably would too. His own disciples found this teaching impossible to understand. How could anyone offer their flesh for others to eat? Any thoughts on why this teaching was so difficult for the disciples and the crowds to understand? Andrew? I don't think metaphors have been invented at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Any, I, any literary people that would know if that's true or not? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Jesus used metaphors in other places, though, right? Any, any thoughts on why would this teaching have been so troubling at this point in context when Jesus taught it? Any thoughts? Has Jesus instituted the practice of the Lord's Supper with the disciples yet? When did that take place? The night before what? Correct. So that hasn't happened yet. Jesus has not instituted the Lord's Supper. Did I put that up there? I might have. He hasn't established this with his disciples yet. So guess what? His disciples in the crowds, they're listening to Jesus teach this, and they're taking him like literally. They're hearing this, and they're going like, this is crazy talk. And so there's a list of things that if you really think about, like when I was looking at it, here's a list of problematic statements from this passage. Jesus is claiming to be from heaven. Problematic number one. Second, we have the I am statements that we've been looking at in John chapter 6. They identify him as the creator of the universe. Could that be problematic to someone? Jesus seems to be encouraging cannibalism. We have three problematic things that come right out of John chapter 6. So if you're among the crowd, would any of you have had an issue with the things that Jesus said? I think I would have. I'd have been like, what? What are you talking about? No wonder they said, this teaching is too difficult. Who can accept it? That was their response. It's a fair question. And so John chapter 6 begins with this huge crowd, right? So we remember the feeding of the 5,000 we dealt with a few weeks ago. It was probably more like the feeding of the 15,000. It's probably somewhere in there. This huge group of people following Jesus, it begins with this miracle. By the end of the same chapter, we get to today. The crowd has become disillusioned. And what do they do? They just walk away. They turn around and they walk away. Jesus is preaching this little mini-sermon and everyone turns their back and they just walk out. They're gone. Right in the middle of it. Now, for those that have been around me for any length of time as a preacher, know that I actually invite and welcome a certain level of well-intended disrespect. Like people pointing to their watches when I blabbed on too long. I get that one all the time from the back. Brad, <laughs> not to mention any names. I don't know uh, what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, or my favorite one, uh, Frank. Frank tells me that he listens to my sermon podcast to help him fall asleep. Um, <laughs> that one's brilliant. Like, that one's really good. I gotta hand it to him on that one. Too bad he's not here. Um, like, I'm good with this, but think about this, right? Preaching is supposed to what? Make To help make disciples, not drive them away. Preaching is supposed to help make disciples, not drive people away. What happens here? Jesus preaches, and everyone walks out. They turn and leave. They're gone, right in the middle of it. Like, don't get any ideas, right? This is the one, this is the only time I can ever say that I've done something better than the Lord. You know what I mean? Not everyone has just stood up and walked out and preaching yet. Um, We'll see how it goes. And so, this is the thing. He doesn't just offend the outsiders. He offends his own disciples. He offends those that are closest to him. He offends those that are the ones that are most likely to get it 
the ones that should get it, he also offends them. And so Jesus always creates this kind of crisis, right, for people that beg some sort of response. What do we do with this Jesus and this teaching? He's left standing in the synagogue with these beleaguered disciples around him, and everyone else is gone. Offended, the once enthusiastic crowds, the multitudes of thousands of people, where are they? They just disappeared. And so it raises a really important theological question, and I wish I had time to really deal with this one, but I don't. Once Jesus has a hold of our heart, can we drift away? It's a really important question. And so traditions, Christian traditions take different stances on this. Scripture seems to say both, show both. Christian traditions, some say you can fall away, others say you can't. When I look at this, I see another, kind of a third way forward that maybe all the Gospels, what I see that informs us kind of here, it's when we drift away, that God is actively seeking us out. This is going to be important in a minute. When we do drift away, God is always actively seeking us out. And we could go into, there's parables after and parables and parables on this subject matter. And so I was thinking, like, have you ever found yourself drifting away? Have you ever considered walking out on Jesus? I'll bet when we're honest with each other at one time or another, this has crossed our minds, or we've done it. Maybe like the crowds in the passage, we can't wrap our heads around. Like in this case, the incarnation was the thing they were having trouble with, Jesus taking God, taking on flesh. Maybe we got hurt by a church, by a pastor, we're driven away by other Christians, we found Jesus' way of living to be too difficult. Uh, There's countless reasons why people drift away. What I wonder is I wonder without God continually re-seeking us over and over and over again, would any of us actually make it to the end with Christ? Without without God doing that. And so we get to the end of this, we look at what what does Jesus expect from us? I think this is the choice presented. We have two choices, right? We have one choice, two options. We bail on him and we walk away. And Jesus is encouraging us to hold on and to remain. And this is where we get to at the end of John 6. And it's like Jesus' sermons, like all sermons, they present us with this opportunity to respond, to decide. And we have this before we have the good part at the end. We've got to get through this one last difficult piece, right? Jesus asks, I think it's got to be one of the saddest questions asked in the Gospels. Do you also wish to go away, like everybody else. It's like when I read that question, it's like the air just gets sucked out of the room. I mean, it is a, like a pathetic question that Jesus had to ask his disciples. Everyone else has walked away. Do you also want to go with them? Right? The world today seems to be walking away from Jesus. Jesus looks at us and asks us the same question. Do you want to go too? Or do you want to stay? Do you want to stick this out with me? And we have to decide for ourselves whether we're going to bail on Jesus or we're going to remain. And so John kind of gives us a really quick glimpse of both of these choices by mentioning two disciples, Judas and Peter. Peter, Judas is kind of mentioned by intimation. He said he knew the one that was going to be trained, and Peter is mentioned by name. And so Judas represents, of course, the extreme example of bailing on Jesus. Maybe Judas, like the crowd, couldn't wrap his head around the teaching, or he outright rejected it. He didn't like the Messiah that Jesus was becoming. And so he offers kind of one extreme. He chooses his way out. Oh, but what about Peter? This is the good stuff. When Jesus asked Peter, do you also wish to go away? Peter responds for the 11. And he says, to whom can we go? What a great line. He said, you have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe. It's like when I finally got to those words, I was like, thank God for this response that Peter has, for these refreshing words right when we need them the most, right after all this this tragedy of 15,000 people just turning their backs and walking away, we have Peter saying, where else are we going to go? Like, you've, you have the words of eternal life. Peter's going to choose to stay, to remain, to abide, to stick with Jesus, even though the vast majority of people have already walked away. Now, there has to be a footnote here. What did Peter eventually do? Denied him, right? Denied him three times. And so there's a footnote here, which goes back to an earlier point, which says that Jesus pursued Peter in order to restore him. So we see that played out again, not just in parable, but in, in you know, Jesus actually pursuing him and healing and restoring him. So it's like Peter gives us a little bit of hope that even when we drift away, Christ is coming after us. So I want to finish with two gifts that Jesus gives us, right? These are the two things that come out of the text. Jesus says the word and sacrament, right? Scripture and communion. These are the two things that just jumped off the page at me. Word and sacrament, these are the things that we form the community of the church around. Word and sacrament. We gather around these two things. And so Peter said to Jesus, right, that you have the words of eternal life. Where do we find Jesus' words today? Where do we find them? We find them in the Bible, right? In the scriptures, in the word. And then to better stick by Jesus, Jesus is like, man, you've got to remain in the word. Read it and study it and live by it. And then he gives us this other thought, this communion idea. And it's like the vast majority of churches throughout history have all understood this difficult teaching of Jesus to be this teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's an early reference to communion, right? And all, most churches have all recognized that and, and can see it. And so Jesus knew that words were powerful, but that something more was needed. So the night before his death, he goes beyond words. He gives this gift of the Eucharist, communion. The Eucharist is this physical touch, this thing that's used to draw us to uh, closer to his heart. So we learn, Jesus says in John 6, that this meal is the new man. It's the way that God is, wants to feed God's people and nourish God's people. And so no matter who we are, we can come to the table. It's the table that wipes out divisions of every kind when we come to it. And so when I was reflecting on this passage, I thought that it did something kind of surprising. And what it did for me was it reinforced the importance of our regular communal corporate worship gatherings, what we're doing right now. This is where my mind went, that for 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering together weekly around these two things, around word and around sacrament, scripture and the table. And there's no substitute for these two things for followers of Christ. And he gives us these two gifts. And it's like, and then you think too, to today, right? It's so tempting for people to devalue the worship gathering. It's happening all over the place. Research shows that committed Christians now attend their regular worship gatherings. 1.7 times a month is now the, the new norm for our committed folks, Okay. So that's significantly lower, as you might imagine, than where it used to be. But what we're learning here doing this as a new church is we're learning uh, that we need to remain in the word and sacrament. These are life-giving things that we do together on Sunday, to stay in the word together, to gather around the table. Because what it does is it offers us a public and regular opportunity to recommit ourselves to Christ. That doesn't just take place once at our conversion, that this is an over and over and over thing that we do, and we do it together. 
It's one of the most compelling reasons why we say we want to gather well. To whom else can we go, Peter said. And so when we're tempted to walk away, we remember the gifts of word and sacrament. Because Jesus encourages us to meet him in communal worship. It's what we're doing here today. So let's continue to gather well for worship so that when we leave, we can truly scatter better. Amen. Amen. Last one. What does a cannibal call a skateboarder? Meals on wheels. Meals on I should have prayed first. <laughs> that was totally backwards. I should have prayed first and then told the joke, but now you have to pray with me. <laughs> God, we thank you for your gifts, the gifts that we receive when we come together to worship. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the table that feeds us for the mission in the, of the world that you have for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.